0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're, we consider you our honored guest. And though I failed to mention it in that chaos that were the announcements this morning, we urge you to fill out a visitor's card. There's one in the pew in front of you that we might have a record of your attendance. If you've never visited a Church of Christ before, probably your first thought is, these people are different. Uh, Not that we're odd, though we may be sometimes, Uh, but that what we practice religiously in our worship is different than what many religious groups. Probably the first thing that you noticed is that we don't have a piano or we don't have a band or we don't have an organ or any mechanical type of instrument of music. And the reason we don't have that is because we believe that God takes His ser- His worship, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, worship offered to Him very seriously uh, in um, the Old Testament. I'm thinking it's in Leviticus chapter 11, and I may have to adjust that. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire to God, or st- used strange fire, and God struck them dead for that. In other words. He was serious about how he was to be approached. And so we don't use mechanical instruments of music because nowhere in the New Testament do we read where Christians use mechanical instruments of music in their worship to God. We read about harps in heaven, but we haven't reached there yet. And so if there's harps in heaven that we'll use, we'll do that then. But nothing in the New Testament suggests that Christians today should use mechanical instruments of music. In fact, the text says in Ephesians chapter five and uh, chapter five and verse nineteen, and Colossians chapter three and verse sixteen, that we're to sing and make melody in our heart. Our heart is where the melody is supposed to be. Also, we take the Lord's Supper, and we do that every week uh, because we have an example—the Lord, the church, uh, New Testament Church. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it says the disciples came together on the first day of the week to break bread. And Paul preached unto them until midnight. So in that context, it's clearly talking about the time of worship. So we're a little different. And we like being a little different because we believe that this is what God wants us to do. And if you have any questions about the other things that we do... Uh, As you're visiting with us, feel free to ask us. You'll find we're pretty nice people, and we enjoy talking to you. So, welcome. This morning, we're going to talk about a subject that is difficult. It's difficult because there's nothing like it in this universe that we can point to and say, this is like God. If I want to understand what the Godhead is like, I can look at this. I can give you all kinds of examples. Commentators have done it since they've been writing commentaries. God is sort of like an egg. You have maybe the shell being God the Father and the yoke being God the Son and the albumen being the God the Holy Spirit. Or God is like an apple. You have the skin would represent God the Father and the the meat of the apple, God the Son and the seed, the Holy Spirit. But those fall far short of what God is like. And the text that was read there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So clearly in those passages, the the text is saying, if nothing else, God is unique. And and it points to the fact, I believe, in that God is one. And we look at other passages that emphasizes this, this oneness of God, that there is one God. A passage that we looked at a few weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 10 where God says there was no other God before me and there are no other gods after me. There is one God. In Romans chapter 3, verse 29 and 30, we read, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God, the apostle Paul writes. And James writes in James chapter 2 and verse 19, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So, the belief in the fact that, that, that worshiping and serving God is vital to our relationship with God. When Jesus was being tested by, the, um, by Satan as he was in the wilderness, fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, uh, Satan showed him the world and <clears throat> showed him all this, and he says, I'll give you all these kingdoms. And Jesus says to him in verse 5, all these, or Satan says, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And J- Jesus' response was, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So if we're going to worship God, if we're going to serve God and there is only one God, we need to try to have some grasp of what he's like. It doesn't take long before, as we're reading through through our Bibles, that some words pop up. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image. Wait a minute. The Bible says there's only one God. What does this mean, let us Make man in our image. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8, when Isaiah sees that throne scene of God, and God says to him, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Who is that us? If there's only one God, and the scriptures clearly teach there is only one God, who is that us? That God is referring to. Those of us that have have some familiarity with the Bible understand that the Bible teaches that there is a, a Godhead, a triune nature, sometimes referred to as a trinity of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I have some quotes here that that may help us to understand. The first is from McClintock's and Strong's Encyclopedia. It says The doctrine of the Trinity and the Godhead includes the three following particulars. There is only one God, one divine nature. But in that divine nature, there is the distinction of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, as he says, as three subjects or persons. And these three have equality, or have equally and in common with one another, the nature and perfection of supreme divinity. Another writer says In the unity of the Godhead, there are three co eternal, co equal persons, the same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. And then the third quote, the doctrine of the Trinity means that within the being and activity of the one God, there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Although the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, the Trinitarian formula is mentioned in the Great Commission. Jesus said, go into all, or, um, go into all the world, baptizing, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. And the point being is that the scriptures teach that God is comprised of three personalities. God the Father, God the Son... And God the Holy Spirit. In, Acts, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, we see where Paul addressed God the Father. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, 18 through 20. And here Paul, beginning in verse 18... says, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Notice verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Notice Paul refers to God the Father. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, if you turn back to the book of John. And we read as John's introducing the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ before he came into the world. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Notice, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So whatever creature this Word is, John, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this Word is God, always was God, and always was with God. That's the force of the original language there. Then look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this creature, this being, not creature, this being that was God, always was God, always with God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice what else he says. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. This being had the glory... Of God the Father, full of grace and truth, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying that this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. So this word, who was always with God, who always was God, who is God, became flesh. And John identifies him as Jesus, the only begotten of God. Paul says... Prayed to God the Father. Here John says clearly that Jesus is God. Turn over your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. Here's an account of the early church. And in this instance here's a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. And there was a need in the church as the church was first began and it was there in Jerusalem and, and, and there was teaching going on by the apostles. Uh, people that uh, uh, Jews that had come in and had converted to Christ had come in for the feast of the Pentecost. They were there. Uh, they probably hadn't planned on staying as long as they did. And so there was a need. They needed food. They needed money. They needed help. And so some of the individuals there who had extra, like Barnabas, sold some property and then gave it to the apostles so the apostles could give it to those who were in need. Well, Ananias and Sapphira thought, well, we're going to sell some property too, but they weren't quite as honest as Barnabas. Because what it seems that they had done was they said, Okay, we've sold the property for X number of dollars, and we're giving it all to you. When in fact, they had sold it for Y number of dollars and kept back some. In other words, they left the impression that they had given everything that they had sold it for, for the work of the church, when in fact they had kept back some. So that's the context. But notice in in beginning in verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession and he kept back a portion of the proceeds his wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet but Peter said Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit notice who does he lie to here <coughs> he's lied to the Holy Spirit to lie to the ho- excuse me <coughs> to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? In other words, they, this wasn't a requirement. They could have not sold it. They could have kept it all. Was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your, co- uh, your own control? Now notice the next ver- this next phrase. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to whom? To God. So clearly in this passage, Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and in lying to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. So in those three passages, we see that the Father is addressed as God, that Jesus the Christ is addressed as God. We see that the Holy Spirit is addressed to God. And as we look at events that happen as recorded in the New Testament we see that there are events where more than one of these members of the Godhead are present. Turn in your Bible over to Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, this is when Jesus was baptized. And beginning in verse, uh, well, let's pick up in verse uh, 16. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So you have God the Son being baptized by John the baptizer, And when he comes up, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and this voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So you have God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit in this one event. Turn back to Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, another account, this is that when Jesus was transfigured, when Peter, James, and John were with him. And notice beginning in verse 5 there of Matthew 17. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out from the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And obviously here you have God the Father, from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. You have God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is transfigured, made radiant. And then the third one is found in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2, John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne. In verse 5 of chapter 4, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And then in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So in this throne scene that John is given a vision of, He sees God the Father on the throne, God the Holy Spirit in these seven flames and seven eyes, and the Lamb that was slain, obviously protecting Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Son. So we see this picture from the scriptures that there's more to this idea of one God than just one being. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When I first started preaching, I was confused, not that I'm not confused now, but, but I, I remember I, as I was teaching that one day it came to me that what I was teaching was that God is made up of three gods, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and that's not correct. God is one. They are one unity. What one knows, the other knows. What one does, the other is involved with. You see this this unity that we have nothing in this earth to compare to comprised in the Godhead. Let me explain, or let me go on. They are all eternal. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So here you have God and the Spirit of God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Speaking of God, the Father, your throne is established from of old you are of ever, you are from everlasting Psalm 93 verse 2 Speaking of Christ Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever And then 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 Therefore brethren being even more diligent to make your call and election sure For if you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly, notice, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So those passages teach that the Holy Spirit is eternal, that God the Father is eternal, and that Jesus the Christ is eternal. They are also omnipresent in the sense that they are aware of everything that's going on in the t- entire universe at the same time. They are aware of what's going on in that furthest star that, is, that we can't even begin to comprehend. And they are aware of what is going on this very moment in this auditorium. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hands shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit, God? Anywhere I'm at. Anywhere in this universe, the Holy Spirit of God knows where I'm at. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. The words of Solomon as he dedicated that temple. God, I know that you won't live within these four walls. Can the earth contain you? Can the heaven and the heavens of heavens contain you? And these verses teach the omnipresence that God is everywhere. Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? I do, do I not fill heaven and earth? Jeremiah 23 and verse 24. And Matthew 28 verse 20, Jesus told his disciples, And I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent, God the Father is omnipresent. Jesus the Christ is omnipresent. We think about Jesus in his earthly ministry in John chapter uh, two, uh, 1 and verse 48. Uh, Nathanael comes to him and Je- as he's walking up, Jesus says to him, Behold, one in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael says, how do, I, how do you know me? And Jesus said, I knew you when I saw you under that tree earlier in the day. Well, how could Jesus be over here? and Nathaniel's over here in a tree if Jesus was not omnipresent which is one of the attributes of God. God is eternal, God is omnipresent, God is also omniscient, all-knowing. But God has revealed, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 10 and 11. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit for the spirit searches all things, yes the deep things of God, For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God revealed that to him. 1 Corinthians um, 1, 10 and 11 and down through verse 12. Let me get, uh, yeah. Yeah. Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would teach them all things. John 14 verse 26. Guide them in all truth. John 16 verses 12 through 13. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 11 through 13. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of obedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And then John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. Because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So we get this picture of God the Holy Spirit being omniscient, God the Father being omniscient, all-knowing. God the Son being all-knowing. And then the last one, all are omnipotent. The angel said to Mary, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the over, of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy One who was born, will be called the Son of God." Uh, Luke chapter one, verse thirty-five. Acts chapter one, verse eight. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Obviously, Jesus talking to the apostles and the power that was given to them by the Holy Spirit. Micah, the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 3 and verse 8 declared, But truly I am of full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and Israel his sin. Luke chapter 1, verse 37, for with God nothing will be impossible. And then Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And that, of course, was Jesus, the resurrected Christ, saying that to the disciples. So when we look at the Bible, we clearly see that the Bible teaches that God is one. There is only one God. But that God, that is that one God, is made up of three personalities who have each one has all the attributes and nature of God. They're all eternal, they're all omnipresent, they're all omniscient, and they're all omnipotent. They are God as one. Well, how does that work out? We're back to the beginning. I don't know. I don't know how they do that. I don't know how God works that out. That's one of the things that he doesn't tell us. But it does tell us what he is and who he is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a passage that I'd like to end with this morning. If you turn your Bibles over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse one there. First Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse one. Therefore I exert first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good, acceptable, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour. Now notice verse four who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just think about that for a moment as we close. God wants all to be saved. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What more could God the Father have done that all might be saved than to ask God to humble himself though he thought equality with God not something to be held on to to humble himself and come in the likeness and manner of men because that's what Jesus did. The word became flesh, and dwelt upon us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What more could have God done? And then we have God the son. What more could he have done? How many times have you and I got our back up and we got all stubborn and prideful? I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that. I don't get credit for what I'm doing. Nobody, you know, I'm not going to do it. How many times all of us have done that at one time or another? If we're honest with ourselves. But the Word, who was God, always with God, and is God, became flesh and suffered horribly that his blood might wash away the sins of mankind. God the Son. And then we think about God the Holy Spirit. Imagine as those first century apostles and those that had the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit had not enabled them, To present the word of God that they needed to hear. To bring them in accordance with God's will and to live as God would have them to live. Tell them how to become a child of God. If the Holy Spirit had not given them power to confirm that their message was not mere man, but a message of God. And then to indwell within us as New Testament Christians, as a guarantee, as a down payment, as an earnest, that we have an eternal home with God. What more could the Holy Spirit have done? And so when we read there in 1 Timothy, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved, all persons to be saved. Let us remember that's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God wants everyone to be saved. And here's the wonderful thing. He's told us how to do it. He says, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of your sins. In Acts chapter 2, as we talked about last week, when those on that first Pentecost after the resurrection of Christ realized that they had crucified their Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, they asked, what must we do? Would Peter say, repent and let each one of you be baptized for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins? God tells us, this is what you need to do. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you repent of, your, <clears throat> excuse me, you repent of your sins, and you're immersed that your past sins may be forgiven, washed away by the blood of the Lamb. But what happens is we start putting in our stuff. And you have this person say, well, just ask Jesus to come into your heart. You know, I have say, you have to find that in the Bible. Just pray the sinner's prayer. I say, you have yet to find that in the Bible, but I can find... Where Peter said, "Repent and be baptized," and when that Ethiopian in Acts chapter eight, when he realizes who Jesus is, as he's reading Isaiah chapter three, and Stephen is, is Philip. Philip is saying that to him, and he's teaching him about that. And he says to Philip, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, If you believe, you may. And what does the Ethiopian say? I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what God asks you to do. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, it's nothing magical about the water. It's not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but an answer of a good conscience towards God. In other words, I want my conscience to be right with God. And God says, if I believe that his son is truly more than just a mere man, that he is deity in the flesh, And then I'm willing to repent of my sins and confess that faith before others. And I'm willing to be immersed in water, to be buried with Christ through baptism. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. Then I arise to walk in newness of life and I can have a clear conscience. I can go to bed tonight knowing that my sins are forgiven. As children, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. If you have not been immersed into Christ, if you have not given your life to Christ through baptism, if you have not repented of your sins, you can't pray that childhood prayer. But God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, want everyone to be saved. So the problem isn't with them. It's with you and I. If you're here this morning and you haven't put on Christ in baptism, if you haven't done God's things, God's way would like to help you to do this, If you want to give your life to Christ in the way that God says, we'd like to help you to do that. And if you are a New Testament Christian and you realize that there's sin in your life, we'd like to pray with you and we'd like to pray for you. But we can't pray, John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, if you're not willing to confess that sin and repent of that sin, we can't pray for you. We're specifically forbidden of praying for God to forgive someone If they're not willing to turn from it. Look at those verses. But we'd like to pray with you and for you. If we can help in any way. Won't you come as we sing this song of encouragement.